Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us now to understand your word and to put it into practice in our lives that we may love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ all the better. And we pray it in his name. Amen. The church is always only one generation away from extinction. The church is always only one generation away from extinction. I'm not sure who first said that, but uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, just recently said it in a speech about Christianity in Britain. Uh, Lord Carey said that Christianity in Britain is declining, and he said that if the decline continues at the present rate, Christianity could be extinct in Britain within the next generation or so. A dire prediction. But you know what? Things are not actually that different in Australia. Christianity in general is in decline in Australia. Now, I know there are lots of problems with census figures. I know who knows what people mean when they call themselves Christians in a census. Uh, but the fact is, the number of people who claim to be Christians in Australia decreased from 88% in the 1966 census to 52% in the 2016 census. So it's a 36 percentage point decrease in 50 years. Uh, between the last two censuses, so from 2011 to 2016, the Presbyterian and Reformed churches managed to decrease in size from 2.8% to 2.3%. A 0.5% decrease. What's the 2.5% over 2.3? is nearly a quarter, a decrease of nearly a quarter in five years. Uh, there are now more Muslims and more Buddhists than there are Presbyterian or Reformed Christians in Australia. At the other end of the spectrum, the number of people who report having no religion is increasing rapidly. Let me quote from the census summary. Those reporting no religion increased noticeably from 19% in 2006 to 30% in 2016. The largest change was between 2011, when it was 22%, and 2016, when, in those five years, an additional 2.2 million people reported having no religion. You have to admit, they're not good statistics. But when you factor age into the picture, it's actually far worse. At the last census, older people were most likely to say that they were Christians. Uh, of people over 65 in Australia, in the 2016 census, 70% claim to be Christian. 70% of people over 65. Uh, but people between 18 and 35, only 39% claimed to be Christians. Uh, in, in the same census, young adults between 18 and 35, uh, young adults were much more likely to report having no religion. So between 18 and 35, again, there were 39% of people who say they had no religion. Uh, but over 65, only 16% of people say they have no religion. Either way you look at it, it comes out the same. Uh, an Australian under the age of 35 is more than twice as likely to report having no religion as a person over 65. Did you get that? If you're under 35, you are more than twice as likely in Australia to say you have no religion as a person over 65. Or if you put it the other way around... 
If you're a person under 35 in Australia, you're about half as likely to say you're a Christian as a person over 65. Either way, it works out the same in the census. The church is always only one generation away from extinction. As I say, there are, I know there are all sorts of problems with census statistics. I don't know who these 52% of people are who claim to be Christians in Australia. I haven't met them in church. But, but, but if there's anything to this, and if we keep going in the direction that we are going with half the people under 35 as compared to people over 65 claiming to be Christians, well, the thing that Lord Carey says about Britain could be true right here. Right here in Australia, we could see, theoretically, the extinction, extinction of Christianity. Well, in chapter 18 of Two Kings, we meet a man who's pretty much the best king in the whole history of Israel and Judah. Uh, certainly the best king since King David. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes king of the kingdom of Judah and he makes a big effort to get rid of idolatry in the land and to encourage the Jews to worship the Lord. And God gives him great success. 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Uh, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There, There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Pretty impressive. Good king. Good king for Judah. But there's a great challenge for Hezekiah because remember the massive Assyrian Empire, the, the most powerful empire in the history of the world up until now, the most powerful army in the world in the history of the world up until now is bearing down on the Middle East. They've destroyed Israel and now they turn their attention to the little kingdom of Judah. Now Hezekiah tries to buy off the king of Assyria and the king of Assyria takes the money but then he attacks anyway. He smashes pretty much every town in Judah, smashes them all, and then he lays siege to the last city, the city of Jerusalem. And he gives this message to the people, chapter 18 and verse 28. Chapter 18 and verse 28. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me 
and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he's misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his hand, ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavayim, Hena and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all all the gods of these countries has been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Scary stuff. When you've got the biggest army in the world at your gate. Hezekiah is scared. But still he trusts in God. And so he turns to the prophet Isaiah and he asks Isaiah to pray for the Jews. Chapter 19 and verse 1. 19.1 When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them, it it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he'll rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. Isaiah says that Assyria are not going to attack They'll hear a report that there's trouble in another part of the empire and they'll, they'll head off. Uh, that actually happens, but it's just a reprieve. Soon they're, they're back at the gate and so Hezekiah prays. He, he prays that God will somehow deliver the tiny kingdom of Judah from the greatest army in the world. Verse 15. Verse 15. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord, the God of Israel... Enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. But they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Hezekiah prays and God answers. Jump down to verse 32. Verse 32. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. 
When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Shereza, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. An amazing miracle. And you know, we've actually got quite uh, detailed records of the Assyrian kings, and they tell uh, in great detail of all their glorious victories over the Philistines and over this, and then there's this dead silence in the records about what happened in Judah, because this is what happened. It says nothing at all. Amazing miracle. And an impressive king, don't you reckon? Hezekiah, he, he's a great guy. He's got a deep faith in God and a magnificent rescue for Judah. The problem is Hezekiah doesn't live forever. And in the next story, King Hezekiah falls ill and we find out that he's going to die. Isaiah tells him he's going to die. Hezekiah prays and God answers. He gives him a reprieve of 15 years. He's got 15 more years to... What should he do for those 15 years? Chapter 20 and verse 15. Chapter 20 and, sorry, chapter 20 and verse 5. Chapter 20 and verse 5. Isaiah, uh, God says to Isaiah, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. He gets a reprieve of 15 years. And then there's just one more story about Hezekiah. In this final story about Hezekiah, we learn about an envoy from Babylon. Some messengers come from Babylon. At the time, Hezekiah is trying to uh, form an alliance with Babylon to, to resist the king of Assyria. And it's now that we learn something terrible. Uh, this victory, this amazing, miraculous victory against Assyria, it's only a reprieve. Like, Hezekiah's just had a reprieve for 15 years, he's still going to die. Well, this victory against Assyria, it's only a reprieve as well because God now reveals that Judah will be destroyed. Uh, Babylon will destroy Judah. Verse 16. Verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Judah will be destroyed. Hezekiah's own relatives, his grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-grandsons, they, they, they will be taken away into exile in, in Babylon. But, but, but notice the way Hezekiah responds. I reckon it's pretty disappointing. He says, good news is not going to happen in my lifetime. Verse 19. Verse 19. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Judah is going to be destroyed by Babylon. His great-great-grandchildren will be made eunuchs in exile in Babylon. That is not good news. 
I reckon it's just plain short-sighted of Hezekiah to only worry about his lifetime. Don't you reckon? It's like saying, don't worry about the environment, don't worry about overfishing, don't worry about global warming and that stuff. We'll be fine. The world's not going to be destroyed before we're dead. You're going to be dead anyway. Don't worry about it. What about the generations to come? It is so short-sighted. Well, Hezekiah dies... After his 15 years, his son Manasseh takes the throne. He becomes the longest serving king of Judah. But sadly, Manasseh is an evil man, unlike his dad. It seems that Hezekiah's failure to care about future generations doesn't just relate to Babylon. It seems he hasn't done that much of a job in his own family either. He didn't use those last 15 years to, to, to raise up a successor who would follow him. His son Manasseh is an absolute shocker. And God says that is the end for Judah. Chapter 21 and verse 10. Chapter 21 and verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says... I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies They have done evil in my eyes and have roused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Eventually, after 55 years, Manasseh dies. His son Ammon takes the throne. But he ends up being just as bad, just as wicked as his father and he gets assassinated. Okay, that's as far as we're going. Chapters 18 to 21, four long chapters. Well done for making it through. Uh, Do you see what was here in these four chapters? I mean, most of it's great stuff, isn't it? Uh, Faithful Hezekiah, best king, really, that we've seen uh, among any of these kings in in one or two kings. And God miraculously rescues Judah from, from the Assyrian Empire during his reign. But sadly, he... He dies and his son and grandson are not like him. And so this this rescue from Assyria is just a reprieve. Uh, Hezekiah's son and grandson are evil idolaters and God pronounces his judgment. Judah will be destroyed by Babylon. All right. As we've seen over and over again, these books of 1 and 2 Kings, what they do is they take us through the history of Israel and they take us from from a great high point in the history of Israel the high point where Solomon is king over the powerful united kingdom all the way through to uh, the destruction of Israel that we saw last week and the the defeat and the exile of Judah that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks so uh, it takes from sort of the high point of Israel's history with Solomon to the low point of Israel's history and the point of these books is to show us why something that started so good ends so badly what goes wrong So what's wrong here in these chapters? Hezekiah is a great guy. What's wrong, though, is he's mortal. You can have a great king, 
But if he's mortal and he dies, you're at the mercy of what his son is going to be like or his grandson is going to be like. It's a massive problem for Israel. How are Israel going to stay in God's kingdom? How how are they going to be part of God's eternal kingdom? What they need is a righteous king who will last. A righteous king whose righteous rule won't be ended by death. And so once again, we see the point of two kings. Israel need Jesus. Israel need a risen, eternal king who will be righteous and whom death will not stop. Israel need Jesus. And and of course, as we reflect on the application of, of one and two kings for ourselves, the point is that we need Jesus as well. If we're going to be part of God's eternal kingdom, we need a king who is going to be righteous and a king whose reign will not end in death. We don't want to be subject to who knows what the son of Jesus or the grandson of Jesus will be like. Do you know what I mean? No, 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 it's not going to happen because Jesus is risen and will never die and he remains the king and he is righteous, even more righteous than Hezekiah. In Jesus we have the righteous eternal king that we need to be in God's eternal kingdom. Do you see the point? Two kings shows us our need for Jesus. But as we think about applying this passage to ourselves, I can't help but think that Hezekiah shows a real weakness here and it's a weakness that we should learn from. I know Hezekiah was a good king, but there is a real weakness. One commentator puts it this way. You saw it in Bible study, but I've put it on your outline again because I think this this nails the issue. Can you see the quote there on the right-hand side down the bottom of your outline? Apparently this guy was was, uh, Beth's Old Testament lecturer, Paul House. So I found out this morning. Here's what he says. Perhaps Hezekiah's only serious flaw is his inability to prepare Manasseh, his successor, to be like himself. It's it's true, isn't it? That's the serious flaw. It it stops with Hezekiah because he hasn't prepared his son to be like himself. Uh, On the other hand, how can anyone guarantee the quality of their children's life choices? We don't really know what Hezekiah was like as a dad. I guess he was quite old by the time Manasseh was born. But if that comment that he made about Babylon is anything to go by, he had a real blind spot about the generations to come after him. And friends, if that's true, it's it's a terrible mistake to make. A terrible mistake to make. I mean, I, I know God is sovereign. I know the gates of Hades won't prevail against his church. I don't believe that the church will become extinct in Australia, but there is nevertheless some truth to the saying, the church is always only one generation away from extinction because the baton's been passed to us and if we drop it, well, it only takes one generation. In Melbourne recently, there was a conference. It was called Hemorrhaging Faith. Hemorrhaging Faith. You know what hemorrhaging is? like bleeding, bleeding faith. Uh, It was a conference about why so many teenagers who are brought up in Australian churches fall away and and aren't Christians. Uh, The presenters quote from research in Canada and Australia and they say this, I'm quoting from the conference. Faith in teenagers is slowly fading away across both nations, Canada and Australia, with statisticians recording under-representation of teenagers and young adults in comparison to the general population. And then in, in Australia... Specifically, it says that statistical underrepresentation of individuals aged 15 to 39 in the Australian church is increasing. 
It's getting worse. There are 50,000 youth and young adults who drift away from the Christian faith annually. 50,000 youth and young adults who drift away from the Christian faith in Australia annually. Uh, The conference quotes from a survey of more than 2,000 Australian teenagers who were brought up in churches. And the survey describes four kinds of teenagers. Uh, The first group is around about 23% of teenagers brought up in church. About 23% of teenagers brought up in church are what the conference calls engagers. Engagers are faithful, active Christians, about 23%. The largest group, around about 36%, are what the, uh, what the survey calls fence-sitters. Uh, fence-sitters still have some religious affiliation. They still come to church with their parents, but they haven't claimed Christianity for themselves. Uh, they might reckon they know it all, they've heard it all before in kids' church or whatever, but they haven't committed themselves to Jesus. They have, they have no enthusiasm, no passion, no love, no, no kind of ownership of Jesus for themselves. Fence sitters, 36% of kids brought up in churches in Australia. Around 26% of teenagers brought up in church become what the survey calls wanderers. Uh, Wanderers feel vaguely positive about Christianity, but they stop going to church, they don't go with their parents anymore, and they don't describe themselves as Christians anymore, 26%. And then the final group, a group of around about 15%, the survey calls rejectors. Uh, rejectors uh, get a strongly negative view of the church from their experience growing up in the church and they actively oppose Christianity as teenagers. That's scary stuff, don't you reckon? Uh, I know for myself, the thing that I want most of all, the, the, the thing that I dream about, pray about, the thing that I am most passionate about is for my children to grow up to be active, faithful Christians. But the stats aren't good. A one in four chance for each child. What's that? A one in 16 chance to have four children who are active, engaged Christians. One in 16, I don't like those odds. Do you? So what can we do? What can we do? Now, it's not my goal to make anybody feel guilty here this evening. As Paul House reminds us, and this is why I put it there on your outline, we cannot guarantee the quality of our children's life choices. We just can't force them. We can't make them make the right decisions. It is possible to be an excellent, faithful Christian parent who does all the right things and then have your children turn away. It's it's possible it happens. It happens. It's happened here. And if your child or your children have turned away from Jesus... I'm not wanting to lay blame on you in any way. But having said that, the Hemorrhaging Faith Conference is perfectly clear about this. The biggest factor in the equation is parents. Uh, You can send your child to a Christian school, you can send them to kids' church and youth group for an hour a week, but by far the biggest influence in their Christian development is parents. Uh, The presenters of the Hemorrhaging Faith Conference put it this way. Let me quote again. The faith commitment of parents has an enormous impact on the faith and church participation of their children. If parents prayed more than just at meals, talked freely about their faith in general discussion, 
uh, talked freely about the Bible, served together at church, worshipped openly and, and could wrestle with tough questions, the children were more likely to live their faith out and attend church in their adult years. In Bible study during the week, we talked about uh, our own experience of being raised in Christian or non-Christian families. And I was struck by how often people said that what they caught from their parents was their real passion. You know, maybe the parents uh, went to church, but what, really, what they really were passionate about was sport or something like that, and that's what they got passionate about. It's interesting how uh, kids kind of... The passion of their parents was contagious. Now, again, you might have done all of these things. It's no guarantee... But the fact remains that parental influence is the biggest indicator. Uh, the second thing that the presenters say is that churches need to actively include younger people. Uh, we need to see children as integral to church, not just the church of the future, but the church of now. Uh, we need to make an effort to, to, to know the children of our church. Uh, we need to greet them when we see them by name. We need to have excellent programs for children and for youth. We need to work hard to teach and model the Christian faith to them in a way that they can understand. And we need to faithfully support these ministries with our money. Uh, but more than that, by volunteering, by helping out, it is so important to have so many of you involved in youth group and teaching kids' church. It is really critical that we have these ministries for the children of our church. And it's vital that we pray faithfully for our children and our youth and for their leaders. I reckon it's an absolute tragedy that at the moment we have our kids separate up in 43 Anderson Street in the morning services. As soon as we get our new building, we'll bring them back into the service on a regular basis. We ought to have children and youth in with us, being served and serving together as the church of now. Of course, it's more than just our church, though, isn't it? If we think more broadly than our church... Do you remember last week Matt Pettit was here and we heard about the extraordinary needs of Reach? Did you hear him say that they wish they could have a Year 12 seminar for Chatswood High School, but they got nobody to do it? Did you hear him say that? Did you hear him say that there are all these opportunities to increase the seminars at Willoughby Girls High School, but they've got nobody to do it? I mean, we keep on praying that God will keep the door open for us to be able to do SRE in public schools. It doesn't matter if the door is open if nobody's walking through it. There's enormous opportunities for us to commend the gospel to the next generation. There is so much for us to do. My question to you is this. What role are you playing? What role are you playing? What are you doing to commend the gospel to the next generation? Now, I know many of you are working hard in this. That's fantastic. But I just want to finish off with a brief interview because I suspect that many people in our church, as they hear this, are nodding their heads and thinking this. Hmm, I'm convinced. I can see that it's very important that we commend the gospel to the next generation. Uh, someone really ought to invest time and energy into the next generation. Just a shame I'm too busy, better be somebody else. So in case you're thinking that, let me introduce you to Professor David Bell. Thanks, brother. David, uh, what, what uh, job do you have? Uh, medical oncologist, cancer specialist. A cancer specialist? Yeah. I imagine that's uh, quite a busy job, being a cancer specialist? It's not a quiet one, that's for sure, yeah, very busy. Yeah, a lot of people with a lot of problems and a lot of questions. What sort of hours could you work in, in, in your job? Well, it's 24-7, 365 days a year, unless I take time off and get a colleague to look after things. Mm. Mm. So you're obviously a very busy man in your work life, but I, I know that you do lots of uh, ministry as well, and particularly ministry with a view to 
furthering the gospel in the next generation. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about the kind of, kinds of ministry that you've done in that area? Uh, well, I'm very passionate about making sure I pass on the baton to the next generation because it was passed on to me. That's why I'm where I am now. So I've been doing work at our local high school, uh, lunchtime groups for Year 7 and 8. Also run a Bible study at 7.30 on Friday mornings for Year 12 guys. Um, I'm involved as the convener for Metro because I'm passionate to see people going to training opportunities for the gospel and be well trained. Um, obviously, uh, convener of the Students Committee of our Presbytery uh, for are. exactly the same reason. Mm -hmm. uh, young people learning to be better trained for ministry opportunities. We're in a culture now and a society that really needs, we've always meant to hear the gospel, but even more so today, where Christianity is really on the nose. So I want to pass on that message of the truth of Jesus, uh, the graciousness of God, the fact that we are saved because of his blood. Our world needs to hear it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Excellent. Uh, Professor Bell is one of the most in-demand cancer doctors in Sydney. Do you hear what he does? He, he leads a Year 7 lunchtime group, a Year 8 lunchtime group. 7.30 in the morning on Friday morning, he's leading a Year 12 group in his school. He serves with Presbyterian youth, all to share the gospel with young people. He serves on the Metro Committee, convenes the Presbytery Students Committee, both of which aim to raise up the next generation of Presbyterian ministers. I reckon, as well as being session clerk of his church and an elder in the Presbytery, he's probably doing two full days a week of work. He could be making a squillion dollars as a cancer doctor on those two full days. I don't think you're busier than him. I actually don't think it's about busyness. I think it's about our priorities. Friends, we must not make Hezekiah's mistake. We must not ignore the next generation. We need to work hard to invest in that next generation. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we have the most magnificent message of all, the message of our eternal King Jesus, who saves us and gives us eternal life in your kingdom. We pray, Heavenly Father, with thanks to you that the baton has been passed to us. We thank you for the people who shared the gospel with us, whether that was our parents or grandparents or friends. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we won't be the ones who drop the baton, that we will pass it on to the next generation. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for those who faithfully serve in kids' church and youth ministry and scripture in schools. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will raise up more of us to faithfully commend the gospel to the next generation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.